We uh, there's not a rule that you have to use the three subs. You'll find us competitive. Um, he's he's the best left back in Canada, without a doubt. Alrighty, hello everybody, welcome back to the third sub, episode 15, and we are back, um, I, I mean, it, hopefully when everyone is listening, we sound a little clearer, a little crisper, there's been some third sub, I guess, budgetary increases, we got some new equipment, some new toys to play around with, and they do sound nice and crispy, so from... Even though he's a bit farther away, as usual, he feels a little closer. I'm here with my co-host, Samuel Rowe, and I'm Alexander Gange-Ruzik. What's new in, in your land this week? Well, yeah, just like you said, the first thing I was going to bring up was, you know, just like a lot of people right now, we've, we've received a little bit of a, of a stimulus package in the, in the form of some audio upgrades. So hopefully, um, for those listening, and it, it turns out well and you enjoy that. And yeah, man. Bundesliga's back, K-League's second week. We've got to watch some of that. We're seeing more training going on in Europe. We've got some CPL news to discuss, a little bit of MLS as well, although it's been a little quieter on that front. So uh, tons of exciting topics. And uh, this is kind of, I think, an open-ended one. I don't really know. There's lots of good starting points, but where the conversation goes, we'll just have to see. But, yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure to be back. Recording a little bit earlier than normal, which I'm actually kind of enjoying. And yeah, it's, it's good to be here. Yeah, well, it's a fresh start. I guess uh, one part of this, I can't call it a lockdown. I think it's like by reflex, all these like English people on Twitter and YouTube, you see lockdown and it's like, no, we're not in lockdown. Like we've been pretty chill here, but this self-isolation, I guess we call it, you know, you don't exactly wake up early all the time. So it's nice to get up. Smell the bacon, like they say, or, you know, smell the the celery if you're vegetarian, because I don't want to make any assumptions, but it's nice today. Probably going to go bike in. Nice day. Who knows? Maybe this podcast will come out today, which would be a rarity. Usually it comes out a day or two after, but it's a nice day, and it was, it was a nice weekend. I mean, it was raining all weekend, which was perfect, because I cozied up, got the TV, live TV working for the first time in about two months, and I was watching... Some Bundesliga soccer. Yes, Bundesliga. The German first division was back. And it was back with the flourish, to be honest. It, there were some quality matchups on tap. Like, first weekend, you usually, you know, you're kind of used to, okay, there's not exactly the most inspiring games. But there were some good games this week. I don't know, Sam. You, you said you caught a few. How, how did you, maybe before we go into games we watch, how did you just feel about the whole return of the Bundesliga as a whole? I think that it felt maybe more normal than I was expecting. I was expecting that, you know, obviously we've had the K-League back and there's been some other little events going on, but the Bundesliga felt like the first real, okay, now sports restarting feels very serious. And, you know, this is a league that I think we both kind of followed before. Like, the, I, I'm not going to make any, uh, you know, make any kind of illusions that I was a – religious K-League follower before the whole coronavirus thing took hold. So to watch a league that I was already interested in and kind of have that back was was really good. And I thought 
the the quality of the football was really interesting because you saw um, in Dortmund and Schalke, I thought a variation of some very high quality finishing by Dortmund, but then also you saw some general rust from both teams and it wasn't the clean and kind of, you know, concise football that I'm used to seeing. And so it was cool to see that real dichotomy of very high level play, but also obviously guys that haven't played in over two months and and just the effect that that has. And we'll see how that develops going down the line here. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting to see how the teams fared because Obviously, what's interesting that for the most part, all the title contenders won bar Leipzig, which is really surprising because Leipzig had really been so consistently, you know, they've been consistent for most of the year. So to see them lose was was quite a well, loser draw. I think, yeah, they lost. So that was quite a shock. But for the most part, the top teams won. So it was nothing unusual there. But even the top teams, they just didn't look themselves. And you could kind of see... Who had which teams have been training well? Uh, obviously, you know some teams like Bayern Munich. It was interesting to see them how slow they were. They didn't seem like the usual Bayern Munich, where it was just a machine. They never really got that famed rhythm. But at the same time, what part of what makes Bayern Munich so good is that you know they they train a lot. They train so so well, and the fact they've only had a week or two weeks of full team training, you could tell that for a smaller team, whereas their strategy is going to be more, you know, we're going to boot the ball, we're going to play simpler. You don't exactly need so many training sessions to play, whereas a lot of the big teams who play intricate football, for the most part, like, obviously some of the teams did end up playing some surprisingly good football, but the other teams, you could kind of tell that they needed that extra training, that, you know, the fitness wasn't necessarily an issue, but it was more like patterns of play, running, you know, like, little details that you just don't get when you only had like, I think seven or eight team sessions together. So I think that's only going to improve. Obviously there's a few hurdles to overcome to make sure that the league continues and hopefully everything stays on track, but that is definitely going to kind of be the storyline heading into the, the next few weeks who can kind of return to that pinnacle. Cause no doubt, even though there's some commanding performance, no one is close to where they were at before the break, but I'm sure there will be some teams that will will get there quite soon. And and when we're talking about Bayern, pardon me, <clears throat> I just have to clear my throat there. Goodness. Um, when we talk about the Bayern and Union Berlin matchup, um, I thought that was very interesting because it really felt like a like a trap game for Bayern. Like Union Berlin's one of the most physical and kind of you know defensively disciplined teams in the Bundesliga and they didn't give away anything. And as you kind of mentioned through training, like I would imagine that Union Berlin's strategy was fairly simple going into that match. And as you said, we didn't see Bayern flowing and attacking and, you know, playing that free football that maybe we're used to expecting, but they still found a way to get it done. And that's what good teams do. And, and I think it's going to be really interesting over the next three, four weeks, especially as we move to some, you know, bigger, more marquee matchups um, as far as the title race is concerned, how teams evolve because we've already seen, okay, which teams have prepared and and trained well, but we're also going to see now that matches are back underway, how do teams adjust on the fly? And uh, it's really a, you know, it's a scenario we haven't been through before because sure you have a preseason and you have the first couple matches of the season, but 
rarely are you trying to get your wheels going this quickly. It's such a, such a rapid progression. So I'm really interested to see how the matches and how the quality of the performances evolves over the next couple of weeks. What's unique about it is like the lack of preseason because it's not like we've never seen bad or not bad. I'm not going to say it's bad, but it's not like we've seen never seen rusty soccer. It's just we're kind of used to it being, you know, preseason. It's been a long summer, you know, new players, this and that, like a mix. Whereas now what was so unique is it's the same players. There's not, you know, not many teams are introducing new players. Obviously, some people were really lucky, like, for example, one player like on Schalke, Salif Sene, Senegalese International, quality defender. He'd been out since November with the knee injury, and he made his return. He would have missed the rest of the season, but he was able to make his return and play. So, obviously, some player, some teams got a boost in that, but for the most part, it's it wasn't like, a, you know, after the summer break where it's a bunch of new signings trying to get together. It's just kind of a mishmash. Teams had to go with their strongest lineups because, as you see, when a team like Leipzig loses, their first week loss might end up being the difference between them, you know, winning a title or making the, the Champions League versus, you know, missing out, which is, that's that's high stakes for this circumstances. Eight weeks away and you jump straight back into the fire. That is, you know, that's unique. And I think that, that makes for an interesting combo because in preseason, what can happen is that you can really see teams feeling out the rust and it really leads to some, you know, that's why people aren't exactly enamored when preseason comes around. It takes a true diehard to watch it because it's just it's a mix of rust and just players. Okay. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be lunging into tackles right away. I'm not going to be doing this. You know, I'm going to take it easy. Whereas now it's like, that's the difference between relegation promotion, this or that. So players are flying into tackles you know, they're maybe pushing themselves further or harder than they would have after such a break. And I mean, in a, in a sense, that led to entertaining football. I'm not going to say it's the most, you know, aesthetic football, especially if not what we're used to from Germany. But for example, in that Berlin, you know, Bayern game, Bayern's fighting for a title, Berlin's fighting to stay alive. There was some, at one point, like I saw some cold-blooded challenges from both teams. And I was like, okay, look, this is like the Bundesliga is back. Soccer is back. It's not like preseason where you just don't see that. And that's kind of, that's what's unique, how they have to go back into the fire. And I think it's only going to make the football go better. You hope players don't get injured because playing that way after so long away, obviously they're fit. I'm not going to say they're not fit. They've been training, but just there's something different about strapping up, you know, the boots and just playing a match because even in training, you're not pushing yourself like you do in the match. And that's kind of, that's kind of going to be interesting to see how the players' bodies hold up, for example. Well, yeah, Mark DeSantos has told us time and time again that match fitness is something entirely different than, you know, training fitness or no matter what you do on the training pitch, no matter what you do in the gym, there's, there's nothing that can really replace that on-field experience. So, um, you know, it doesn't, didn't seem like there were a lot of injuries or, you know, didn't seem like that the health was a, was a huge problem over the weekend. And hopefully we see that continue. And as you mentioned, I think, you know, not that there's necessarily any real positives to come out of the, the whole COVID crisis, but, you know, throughout soccer and, and really sports more generally, if you're an athlete, professional athlete who was injured going into this, it gives you a huge opportunity. I mean, I think about the the NHL if they're to return you know all kinds of guys that were 
looking at being out two to three once and maybe thinking about, you know, returning for the end of a playoff run. And now maybe you're going to have the opportunity to, to hop right back in. And it's the same in the Bundesliga. It's the same for, you know, some MLS teams, if you had a preseason injury, something like that. So there are some silver linings for some out there. And uh, yeah, uh, the one thing about the Bundesliga that, that I found interesting uh, was, I don't know what you thought, Alex, about seeing, the substitutes on the, and I'll use air quotes, even though this is a podcast on the bench sitting up in the stands, three or four seats apart. That was a, that was a pretty, pretty interesting look. And I'm not sure I ever imagined seeing something like that. Yeah. Well, what I'll give to the Bundesliga is they were really thorough in their return. And I mean, them to be like, obviously they, they aren't doing this to – obviously, they're going to get time recording. Maybe the numbers are out, but I haven't seen – you know, haven't seen them, but I have to imagine, like, it's going to be insane all over the world. Everyone was watching every country with the rights, I'm sure. It's going to be through the roof. But, you know, they weren't doing this for popularity. They were doing this to keep teams afloat, and obviously this popularity is going to help that. But, you know, there was they weren't doing this just because. So, they obviously, they want to protect – the players, they want to protect the workers. And I saw a video on the Bundesliga Twitter. You can check that out on their English Twitter, German Twitter, French Twitter, whatever you speak. But there's a video showing all the precautions they took during this, you know, during the pandemic to make it, you know, everything safe. And it was so interesting to see, okay, they started with individual training. You know, they, they started with group training. So you could have three or four guys, you, you know, in your little bubble to train with and then, eventually get to full team training, test everyone. So there's no negative tests. They had three buses instead of one. So like players could have their own road to themselves in the bus to ensure, you know, the social distancing. There was each team had like four locker rooms, one just for the starters, one for the, just the goalkeepers, one for like the subs. It was like crazy how they had all like these locker rooms. Each player had to go into the, the stadium in different tunnels, like warm up were staggered. So there weren't, like it wasn't like every it wasn't stutters plus subs warming up. They they staggered the warm ups. There's no walkouts. They just came in and started kicking the ball. The referee dressed and came out during a different tunnel. Like there's all these precautions taken and it, and it's smart and it's it's gonna work. And it was just impressive to see how thorough it is. Even like obviously there's a lot of essential staff that have to work during the games, be it commentators, you know, ball people. You know, there's lots of people and they just they split up the pitch into three quadrants there's the pitch where it's just obviously the players and the referee and then there's the the sidelines so the benches but that's why they're spread out because obviously most usually in the game the benches are just everyone's in there so they had to split up the technical staff and then put the players on the side and then there's the crowd because obviously there's some people working during the game and the commentators etc and I just it was it was just very interesting to see how Bundesliga handled it I think if there's leagues say at least for us, like MLS, but even other leagues, like the English Premier League is thinking of coming back and the Portuguese League is coming back. You know, that, it gave them a great framework. And obviously we have to still see how the positive tests, if there are any, or, you know, how the rate of infection reacts to this. But if things end up staying relatively calm, this could be a great template for other leagues to follow. And I know we've talked about this before, how the Bundesliga is, you know, really going to set 
the precedent and I think having, you know, the Germans who are relatively famed for their, you know, organization and, and discipline, they're, they're setting a really good example. And it's kind of interesting, you know, you see guys diving into tackles and they're right up against each other. And yet, you know, you're practicing all these other things, but it's, but it's about limiting all the possibilities for transmission as much as possible. And obviously when you're playing football, there are certain chances that, you know, that water particles or, you know, whatever is going to be transmitted in between athletes, but you want to take all the additional chances for that to happen away if you can. And something like sitting apart on the bench is a great um, opportunity to do that. So then the, uh, the second thing I wanted to, I wanted to kind of touch on about the Bundesliga this past week was, well, first of all, Eric Haaland is really, really good. I think we, I think we all <laughs> knew that, but uh, you know, I was just having not seen him in a while, incredibly impressed with the way he just sort of picked things right back up. But to, to continue on that point, there was a bit of a, I don't want to say a controversy because I feel like it gives it a little bit too much credit, but his, uh, his post-game remarks were, were a bit short right at the end and and I think some people took exception to that but I'm I'm not one of those people but I'm interested Alex to hear your take on on Haaland's play and 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 his interview and and maybe his his interviews in general because there's been a bit of a a bit of a Twitter movement calling up some of his his moments from the past and kind of trying to spin a bit of a narrative there well Erling Braut Holland he's first of all play he's he's a he's a specimen I was introduced to him last year during the U20 World Cup. I think as many people were, at least, you know, this is the first time I heard of this kid, and I was like, oh, he scored 11 or 10, 10 9, maybe it was 9 or 10 goals against Honduras's like, U20 team. It, it was he, a lot of goals. He scored a, a – he won the golden boot basically just off that one game, <laughs> which was, you know, it was like, okay, this Norwegian kid, a bunch of Hondurans, whatever, you know, like, you didn't think too much of it. And all of a sudden at Salzburg, he's, he's potting goals. Okay. He scored against Napoli. Oh, he scored against Liverpool. He scored against Liverpool at Anfield. Okay. All of a sudden he was tied with Lewandowski in the Champions League goals. He had 30 goals. Oh, he went to Dortmund. He's going to do nothing at Dortmund. Oh, just kidding. He scored, what was it? Like seven goals in about 80 minutes of play or something ridiculous like that. And it's just like, okay, this kid's for real. But like, you know, he's a unique package. He's, He's built like a he's built like a small truck. Like you see, what stands out is how wide his shoulders are. Usually, when you're young, you know, you're, you're scrawny. You're kind of built like a I don't even know how what kind of description like a lampshade. Whereas he's built like you know he's like a frame and he's got these shoulders and he's got the hulking target man attributes. But at the same time, he runs like a sprinter. It's the classic. If we're gonna go North American, he's built like a running back, but. It's scary because he's got a touch. He's just, you know, he's, he's a special player. But at the same time, you look at him, you see a man, and but you forget that he's, he's not even 20 yet. He's, like, he's about two months younger than me, for example, which is just insane to think he's done all this already. And for that, I mean, it was just interesting to see so many people criticize him for that interview. And it's it just it didn't make sense because it was like you looked at the interview. It's just classic right after the game. You're getting asked all sorts of questions, the classic, you know, the, the, the stereotypes. Oh, how'd you feel? How'd you do this? You know, it's like, yeah, obviously some people are media trained, you know, you'll, you'll get, how'd you feel? And they'll do a 300 word answer. But if you really think about it after you play, how do you feel? I'd be like, you know, good. Like, 
I was good. I played like, you know, like it's not necessarily if you think of the nuances and obviously Holland, he's not everyone. He's not a cliche. And for that, honestly, I welcome it. And from what it sounds like, he's a pensive young lad. And when you interview him on his own and when you ask him deep questions, he thinks and he really puts himself out there. But obviously right after a game, he's not going to be one to go, how do I feel? Well, I'll feel great. I scored that, you know, that's it. He doesn't, he's not a man of many words unless they're needed. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. I don't know why players deserve to be attacked. Obviously as a media person, I would suck to interview someone. And, you know, I've had interviews where I've had seven questions and, you know, lots of questions and I end up talking more than the interviewee. I mean, if we're going to talk about it, one, (laughs) <laughs> one notoriously famous clippy answer was Michael Silberbauer. So funny story about that. I, cause I worked a lot during last summer. I wasn't able to go to any Pacific games. I really wanted to go. A couple of our BTS guys went, covered the game, you know, great experience. I was sad that I didn't get to go to West Hills, but then I went out to Ontario to go to school and they happened Pacific happened to play forge. And I was really excited. I applied to get the, you know, media credential, I got in, I was excited, first Pacific game live because I'd been covering the team via, you know, via online, which is great and all, but I wanted to interview players. I wanted to, you know, see the team in person and just analyze them and see, you know, tactically all that stuff. So I was really excited. I wrote down all these questions. I had all this stuff prepared. And then in the post-match conference, I went down and there was Michael Silberbauer and all the Forge local Hamilton media had been talking to them. They obviously didn't care about Pacific. They were just kind of there to get their standard audio. So I basically got to have like an interview. And I was like, okay, first time asking the coach. i am got all these questions to ask him. And obviously I start out slow because you don't want to just go right into how's your season gone, you know, right after a game. Like he's obviously not thinking. So I'm asking him questions about the game. And, I'd, and honestly, most of my questions weren't like that vague. They were mostly about the game and what I'd seen during the game. It was like I had seven or eight questions. I ended up speaking for about like 45 seconds total. He answered his answers were about a combined 20 seconds. Like it was a proper joke. He was just like, I was like, you know, like I, I think there's one there's like a missed penalty. And it was like, how does the how did the missed penalty, you know, kind of impact your momentum or something like that? And he was just like, We missed. It sucked. And I was like, all right, like, <laughs> like it was just really clipped and it just really was disappointing because it was like maybe you know maybe some of my questions weren't the greatest I mean I'd have to look back and see but some of them were you know they're pretty pensive I don't have my notebook right in front of me so I can't you know I can't find them maybe for later in the show I'll find it and I'll read out some of the questions and let I'll let Sam be the judge if I was out of line or not but it's just yeah some people aren't you know that that was notorious like Silverbauer there was more or just being, you know, he wasn't exactly the most talkative in there. That I could see someone getting a grift from that. But from Holland, it was just the TV interviews, they're never really, there's never really much you can take from it all, for all this to say. And I just think the criticism against him is kind of unwarranted. And I think, you know, he's a young lad. He's doing what he is. And sometimes we forget that. Well, some, something that I try to keep in mind as a, you know, as a, in air quotes, media person is you know, I think there's there's a difference between being disappointed with the response you get and some sort of sense of entitlement that oh I deserved a better answer than that. And I think there's it's it's very important to keep the distinction between those two because 
you know, as, as an independent media person with the white caps, it's, I can, I can ask questions and I can, you know, request interviews and, and, and you can, you can prepare all you want, but you have to kind of go into that with the mentality that you, you never know exactly what you're going to get out of it. And that's, that's okay. You can't go in with, you know, set expectations of, of, of what exactly, you know, what kind of answers you're going to get or that, you know, you're going to get the headline you're looking for. And I think if you, if you go into media with that attitude, you're going to be, you're going to be disappointed a lot of the time. And it's sort of, it's different. My work with uh, Simon Fraser university, you know, when you're sort of the, the internal media, then you can go to a coach or you can go to a player and be like, Hey, we, we want to do a story. Like we'd really, we really need you to come and do this with us. And it's a different relationship, but when you're that kind of independent third party media, you kind of have to, you have to take what you get to a certain extent. And, and I think, you know, if you're, if you believe in yourself as a, as a journalist or as a writer, as a podcaster or whatever it may be, then it's your job to do the best you can with what you get and, you know, not necessarily complain about the answers people give you, but sort of just, you know, find a way to make it interesting. Where is the story? Where's the conversation? So, yeah, I think with Haaland, like he's, that's just a bit of his mannerism. And I think it's also a bit of a cultural thing. In my experience, Scandinavians are, you know, they, they kind of fit that same mold where when you ask them a direct question, they give you a direct answer. And when you, when you kind of go into a conversation, you get a little more in depth that, that will open up, but it's just, yeah, if it's, if someone asks, like they asked how and you know, what was that? What, what was the significance of going down to the stand at the, at the far end is like, it was, it was for the fans. And I mean, that's, it's not, that's not an incorrect response. And I think the interviewer knew when he asked that what the answer was. So really, really what was the point or at the very least you got the answer you were probably looking for anyway. So yeah, it's, I don't know. It's interesting. People, yeah, people have different expectations when it comes to, to media, you know, player media and interviews and, and, you know, not everyone can be a Andy Rose or to St. Ricketts who, you know, these guys, these guys weave great stories and they're willing to, to sit there all day and chat, but you know, some guys media is just an obligation. And and I don't think that's, that's wrong. Some people, you know, some guys enjoy the media, some don't. And that's, it's just something you have to, you have to work with. Yeah. Well, there's nothing wrong with, you know, going out there and fulfilling your obligations. You know, if anything with the silver Bauer thing, for example, I mentioned, I was just more surprised you know, as a head coach, you're kind of used to it. Like, especially with the Whitecaps, we're fortunate that Mark DeSantos, win or lose, he'll sit there and wax poetic for hours. You know, he could talk for hours just explaining. And it's nice having that, you know, open line of communication. You got honesty from a head coach, but sometimes you do forget from everyone that, that some people it's not for, you know, everyone. And what was interesting for me about that is I was so, you know, the silver bower, you, you just completely was – cold lipped. I was like, okay, fair enough. Funnily enough, or ironically enough, he got fired like three weeks later. So maybe something was on his mind, but later that day, I, well, later after that interview, I, I, I'd requested through Pacific to speak to David Norman Jr. Cause he'd recently moved from the white caps. And, you know, even though I'd, I'd waited around, he'd showered and everything and the team guys waiting from the bus, he still came out and gave me a bunch of time and I ended up having a great interview with him. Great. end up writing a, one of my, more you know favorite interview articles that I wrote and it was just you know it's interesting to see I guess for media some people 
are just more, you know, media friendly air quotes, not to say everyone isn't media friendly, but some people, you know, they just live for it. They love it. They're, they're good at it. And some people, you know, especially after a loss too, that's kind of the thing, figuring out, you know, what, you know, analyzing right away and dealing with people that's not for everyone. And I think there's no sense of entitlement, but, you know, before we do move back into our Bundesliga talk, I actually did get pick up my notebook. It is right beside me here. So I had my notes. I actually, interesting enough, when I write questions, I just write general thoughts and I kind of formulate them as I go. But I had thoughts on the game. That's general. I could see why that could annoy someone. I said, what did you say at halftime? Because during that game, I think it was nil-nil at halftime. And it just, they, they completely, or it was like, 2-0 at halftime because they scored, conceded two goals at the edge of that, like right before the half. It was how did the missed penalty kind of impact your momentum? How was playing through the middle tactically impacting you? Uh, what was your general or what was your impressions of your defending? How did you rate Caden Chung's performance and what, what can you learn from a kind of this kind of match? And some questions I could see why they were frosty, but I don't know, Sam, what, what, what are your thoughts on, on those? <laughs> Well, it's, it seems pretty reasonable, but uh, it's it's funny that you mentioned Marco Santos and, you know, how he is, for the most part, like absolutely phenomenal with the time he gives to the media. Even after the cameras go off, he's willing to sit there and go back and forth for five, ten minutes after training sessions and things like that. But, you know, I think of the two away matches I was at last year in Seattle oh, yeah. and Portland, and those were two of the, the shortest media availabilities Mark's probably ever done. Like I think Portland was probably like a minute and a half. And, and again, like that's not that it is like, it is what it is to a certain extent. I don't necessarily like that phrase because I don't really think it means anything, but (laughs) you know, it's just, that's, you know, you can, you can travel six hours down the road and, you know, stay overnight in an Airbnb and then, yeah, you get a, you get a three minute interview. And (laughs) uh, you know, it was a, it was a great, it was a great enjoyable experience and, you know, getting to see that, Theo Bear goal live. I'm, I'm really, really, awesome. really, really glad I was there for that. But that's, you know, those are, those are the lumps you get as a, as a media member. Sometimes it just, you know, some, it, it gives and it takes away and, and you never, you know, you never know what you're going to get. You could go into a, a day of training with no questions and, you know, end up with some fascinating answers. And then other days you think you've, you've got all these great questions lined up and it doesn't work out. So, uh, yeah, this is a bit of bit of a, a bit of a dive into a into an interesting topic. But, <laughs> I'm uh, sure in future episodes, at least now that I have this notebook, like I'm I'm sure there's lots of interview stories we can uh, definitely for a future episode because I've had some you know some good interviews with some people and some other ones. It's been you know it's it's interesting to see what kind of players. But I guess well not to go too off track. I mean, obviously in this podcast, nothing wrong with that. It's you know it's an open conversation about the game but to kind of keep a theme from the Bundesliga I watched four games Sam watched two if I'm not mistaken but from those games you watched from highlights you saw you know what was your general takeaway what were you know what what were some of the best games best players you know what were your thoughts on the the celebrations you know how how did the what were some of those takeaways that really you know that you really stuck in your mind after this weekend's over from these Bundesliga games okay well I'll, I'll bring it up because I'm, I'm honestly surprised we haven't mentioned it yet but uh 
Alfonso Davies just reminded again and again how much that guy belongs now at Bayern and is really not not only belongs in the team but is a you know is an important squad member and, and a focal point at times and I think that's kind of still something I'm wrapping my head around but the yeah just the, the level of comfort I think you you see on the pitch is is pretty impressive and even though it wasn't a great performance for Bayern and probably, you know, as their, their team play improves, I think he'll grow and grow in his role and kind of, you know, get back to, to the level we all know he's capable of. But I think just, yeah, seeing him back on the pitch, back playing for Bayern and just kind of how, you know, integral he is to the squad. That was, that's a cool reminder. And then, yeah, I think just Dortmund, despite the fact that, they didn't look a hundred percent throughout the entire match. They had those moments of quality. And I think that maybe on the day they showed more quality than Byron did. If we're looking at the top two title contenders, you know, maybe Byron has the depth and has maybe, you know, the all round performance to get it done, but you just, some of the passes, some of the finishes from Dortmund were, were really, really impressive. And so, you know, that's, it's not a very uh, not a very creative answer because they're the top two teams in the league. <laughs> but th- those were the two teams, you know. And and Davies obviously kind of skews that a little bit for a Canadian. But yeah, I think those were the two things that really stood out to me. Well, yeah, with Davies, it was you could tell he was rusty. I think his tackling was noticeably off because what had made him so special at left back this year is that he just his left and right feet were just magnets for tackles. He, he, I think he was close to the Bundesliga leader in like tackles, which is insane. But his, what I noticed is that his offensive play was through the roof. He was making these runs and he'd get to the final third and he'd, he'd vary his, his type of delivery into the box. It was low, high. And honestly, if his players weren't so rusty in front of goal, Davies conceivably could have had two or three assists. I mean, he had like four or five, you know, key passes. He was, he was all over the park. He was, he was buzzing. And I, I thought that was, you know, I, I, I enjoyed watching it. I, I missed, you realize how much you miss watching him play because he just plays with so much joy and, you know, he, he makes the game fun. But in terms of performances I watch, I mean, surprisingly, I was able to watch four of the top five play and, or is that correct? Yeah, I think four of the top five teams play. And you know what? This, I think it's going to be a solid race to the finish because it's so tight right now and the two teams that surprised me you you mentioned Bayern and Dortmund I'd watched them a lot before because you know with how nice they both play in the Champions League you just watch them a lot when there's all these other leagues on I watch a lot of league uh you know Premier League through the zone Serie A less this year for a multitude of reasons mostly cultural surprisingly but maybe that's another you know another topic for another another week but or when the Serie A if they if they they do end up returning but you know I didn't necessarily watch as much Bundesliga beyond the you know when Davies was playing or Dortmund was you know playing so for me to watch some of these teams closer I'd obviously seen them play before but I'm not gonna say like Borussia Mönchengladbach which interestingly enough I did you know those which team should you support I got them twice so clearly there's something about that team that you know I that I'd be attracted to Obviously, I've watched them play a handful of times maybe this year, but I can't say I followed them closely or, you know, really seen them play. And to watch them play this weekend against Frankfurt, 
the way Munch and Gladbach set up is I just really like the way they play. For example, another team like that was Bayer Leverkusen. Can't, obviously, I keep hearing about the Peter Bosch system. He used to be the former Dortmund coach before he got sacked, and he really turned Leverkusen around. They play incredibly nice football, and I was watching them on Monday, and I was like, why haven't I seen this team more this year? Why have I not watched them as much? And it kind of allowed me to see some other teams beyond just the big two. And I was really impressed. And I think for those listening, this will definitely be out before then. If you're, I think it's Saturday, if you got nothing to do, watch the, if, if it's on, watch Leverkusen versus Gladback. I think it's third versus fourth. That's going to be a huge game. Both are really unique teams. I think Gladback watching them defending, they were, for the most part, solid, but just the way they attack. They have like three or four strikers on the on the pitch. Well, the, the two that I really, you know, the ones I'm more familiar with because they, you know, played in France is Marcus Turam, formerly of Gangan. So shout out to, to our guy Kevin there. We we got to see him live last year. He's a, one of his favorite players. And then the other guy, Alassane Play, also a Frenchman. What's interesting, these guys are all strikers, and you're kind of used to saying why there's three or four strikers on the pitch, but there's so much movement in the front three. You look at Marcus Turam, he'll turn up on the left wing, he'll turn up on the right wing, he'll turn up as a striker. He's, he's built kind of like a Holland, but he, he play, he's so fast like a winger. The way Munch and Gladbach set up, they got so much fluidity in your front three. And you watch that and you think of Mark DeSantos, who speak of, you know, he's spoken a lot of having that fluidity. And that's kind of something he, I, I, you know, he's something he idolizes and he wants to see happen. And it made a lot of sense. And, Obviously, you know, you worry, are they going to get confused? Are they going to pick up each other's spaces? But they're so smart. They really occupy these sorts of channels that, you know, it just makes defending against them a nightmare. And I think Leverkusen's similar to them in a vein, but whereas Munch and Gladbach's got a bunch of strikers, Leverkusen didn't have any. They had Kai Havertz, who's nominally, you know, an attacking midfielder, but he's, he's a six foot, you know, he's six one. He's, he's built like a striker. They put him at a false nine and, he he was such an interesting player because obviously he's a well-known. He's only 20. He already has 30 Bundesliga goals. He's he's captaining Leverkusen. He's he's the next you know big prospect for German soccer. But what's so unique about him? He's got the skill set of an attacking midfielder, the body of a, a striker, and the you know the speed of a winger. He's he's such a versatile player. And when I watched him, for example, and they didn't have any strikers, Leverkusen played fluid like. Munch and Gladbach, yet them, their fluidity was more in the midfield to attack. It was more the transition game. It wasn't where Munch and Gladbach was, get, you know, we're going to get the ball to the final third and then we're going to start shape-shifting, whereas Leverkusen's, okay, we're focusing more on that middle third build-up and, you know, having Havertz, for example, his heat map, he was just all over because he was just kind of drifting around. And that was a nightmare for defenders. Like, okay, he's going to be on our shoulder and he's big, but at the same time he's drifting. And I just think, for example, those two teams, those are two teams I want to follow closely now because they're definitely, I think the way things are going, at least one of them is going to be in the Champions League next year and the other one will, will definitely go to Europa League. I think those are two teams that, you know, I'm excited to watch more of and hopefully they can keep some of their young players because I think there's a lot of, a good future ahead for both of them. It was good just to see more of them and see more teams like that than just what I'm used to watching. And as you said, we don't have to wait long to see those two again, and we get to see them matched up against each other. So that's Saturday morning at 6.30 a.m. Pacific time, looking glad back, taking on Leverkusen. And then we've also got one and two in the table on Tuesday the 26th, Dortmund and Bayern at 9.30 a.m., also Pacific. So we got, you know, 
the top four in the league playing each other over the next week here. And so that's very exciting. And yeah, for those that haven't checked out those two teams yet, it's a, it's a great opportunity to, to introduce yourself. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, yeah, I think it's tough because for example, I woke up at six thirty for Borussia Dortmund versus Schalke as you did. It's not easy if you prefer to sleep in PVR, whatnot. I don't blame you, but don't be scared or, you know, don't be – basically, if you see a game on the TV, even if you don't recognize the teams or you're not maybe as familiar, watch it, and I think you won't be disappointed, especially now there's, you know, not that much else to do. Maybe, I mean, obviously, if you're going back to work, et cetera, you know, you, you're going back to – slowly back to normal life. That's fair. But if you are looking for soccer, I'd say don't be scared to watch new teams, and you're going you're gonna to be surprised. I think you're really going to be surprised, and I guess we're going to – Speak of new teams, you know, and new horizons, obviously, as we mentioned, you know, the K-League, obviously, it's a league we're trying to, you know, we're starting to follow a, li- a little more for the first time. And obviously, this they had week two recently, and, you know, it was another interesting match week. A, a lot of, you know, a lot of teams beating other teams that you weren't necessarily expecting, a lot of surprise, a lot of parody. And Obviously, I didn't watch as much with the Bundesliga back, but I did catch Suwon once again to see our guy, Daniel Henry. And Sam actually caught a few games himself. And the K-League as well continues to impress. I think in terms of two leagues back, they, they, they gave us a good, a good selection. And I think, for example, in the Suwon game, Daniel Henry and his team, they went up 2-0 and they blew it and lost 3-2. And when in a league where those kinds of you know leads are going up in smoke, I think you can't can't accuse them of being short on entertainment and I just think it was another good week at K-League and there's a lot of good games on tap this week yeah and so to to sort of break it down from my perspective really it's been you know Ulsan Hyundai has been the been the cream of the crop so far that's the team that beat Suon Daniel Henry's team this past week and you know they're they're sitting with seven goals for and only two against and you know two and oh at the top of the table, but then really everyone else two through 12, even though, you know, some have wins, some have losses, no one has, you know, more than a plus or minus three goal differential. So all the matches have been tight and we've seen a lot of results from week one to week two sort of not line up. So you think you maybe have the measure of a team and, you know, know their quality after week one. And then you see a result in week two, that's a bit confusing. And so one of the matches I watched this past week was Gangwon FC against Sangju Sangmu and Gangwon in week one beat FC Seoul three to one relatively handily. They look comfortable. They, they look pretty impressive. And then saw them in week two. Uh, it was on Friday night. So late on Friday, play against Sangju Sangmu and and they just got beat up and and Gangwon kind of reminds me of Whitecaps teams in years gone by a little bit I mean I know it's an incredibly small sample size but just this match in particular that I watched on the weekend it was it was a strange one because so they they lose two to nil and in one sense, the match could have very easily been two to two. In another sense, it could have easily been six or seven one for Sangju. So it was sort of this, I don't know, it reminded me a lot of the White Cavs in years gone by where, you know, they have chances and they just can't quite finish them. And then they, you know, have a critical defensive breakdown and the 
Um, I think it was, I can't remember if it was the first or the second goal, but uh, Gangwon had a corner and they only had one defender back. And so Sangju hoofs it up the field and it's a one-on-one foot race and Gangwon's defender falls down and you've essentially got an attacker in the whole half of the pitch he's got to line up his shot on goal. And it was like, the last time I I've even seen that, I don't know, but it just seems like something, you know, you have seen someone like Daniil Henry dive in, you know, attacking off a corner and then, you know, leave someone exposed at the back end. And it was just, yeah, it was, it was highly entertaining to watch. And the, the gangwon manager was really demonstrative on the sideline. You could just see him, dying with like every opportunity that went by there was a wide open header in front of goal that was shanked and he's just got his head in his hands and it was it was really entertaining now the only thing I will say is that other than that one free match per week that's available on YouTube it's really challenging to find some of these matches in Canada and I was using weird YouTube streams that you know there'd be random noises going on in the background and then it was like 360p quality. And so, I don't know. I'm really hoping that I don't know what the realistic possibility is of, you know, gaining access to, to more of these streams. And, you know, I prefer to not have to use illegal means to do so. But um, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, maybe either there's something, there's a method I'm missing out on or that somehow the, you know, the broadcast rights kind of get picked up somewhere in Canada. Because I've really been enjoying watching the K-League and, uh, and also following, you know, our guy Daniil is, is fun to do too. So, uh, yeah, Alex, what did you think of what you saw from Suwon or, or anyone else in the K-League this past week? It's What I like about the K-League, it's, it reminds me a lot of MLS, but it doesn't have that same grindiness about it. And don't get me wrong, I love the grindiness of MLS. I love guys like Tommy Heineman, like we mentioned about a month or back. I love that, you know, that, that American – you know, spirit about MLS, but with Korea, it's, South Korea, it's like, it's like MLS, you know, it's the same, you know, a lot of internationals are always forwards and, you know, maybe defense isn't necessarily always valued, but I just like how technically gifted the Korean players are. And I think if you look at Canada, where Canada's maybe lacked internationally, you know, maybe they, there's the t- typical North American thing where they tend to valorize big players, you know, physical players over technical, you know, technical skills. And, you know, with South Korea, obviously, you know, there's, there's sorts of stereotypes. Like, oh, the South Koreans are, you know, they're smaller, which, you know, we, we now know, obviously that's just not true. You know, their height differences between, you know, countries is very minimal, but despite that, the South Koreans, they just, you know, they've, they've said, you know, screw the height. We'll, we'll, we'll go, we'll, we'll make all of our players be it, you know, five foot four, be it six foot five. They know how to play with the ball at their feet. They know how to play. And you, you see that in someone like Huang Inbaum, who, you know, he comes to physical MLS. He's not necessarily built frame wise, but he's got the skills to, to survive and to make himself shifty and adaptable. And I think if you're looking at, you know, where the U S and Canadian you know, young players have gone wrong is obviously now with guys like Jonathan David, Alfonso Davies, you know, lots of these young guys, they are technically gifted, but especially in the past, there was this tendency to, you know, hype up physical prospects just because, oh, they're big and they can run. Whereas, you know, you look at South Korea, how much that's developed their national team, look how good they've been 
for so long because they really they have good values and good soccer values and I really like it reflects in their league I like watching their league because the players they play so nice in the Suwon game it was just there's a lot of little bits of one twos and you know just good like the Suwon's first goal was just an incredible 30-yard strike where the guy he didn't necessarily just belt it in the top corner but he just he looked up saw the keeper bit off his line and kind of looped one in the top corner it was just so smart and I just you know that's what I really appreciate about the Korean league it's just it's a it's a really a thinker's league and I think you know as a player myself I you know I like that I like to see players that think they like players that you know really like to you know play around and maybe not as always lumping and whatnot which is fun I, I enjoyed playing in those games too but there's just something nice about a chess match and I think South Korea they really mastered that and I think that's kind of why their national team's so good because surprisingly despite you know big imports like Hung Ming Sun you know he's, he's doing great for the for, for the Tottenham Hotspur but you know besides you know besides that uh, him and a couple other big players most of their players are domestic based yet they still do good internationally so clearly there's some sort of value in that hopefully a league like say the CPL it develops into a really technical league versus a physical one I think I'm happy that teams like Forge and Cavalry and Pacific all had those philosophies and they were playing nice soccer because I think it makes a difference in, in a multitude of ways. And, and when you're talking about the, the chess match there a second ago, it kind of seemed like after week one where we sort of praised Suan for, for their tactics, it seems like things fell apart a little bit defensively and, and Daniil Henry was kind of at the center of that. And like, he wasn't necessarily uh you know, to blame because one of the goals was a free kick that went under the wall. Uh, another one was two Suwon defenders just got essentially bowled over as a, as an attacker came in for for Ulsan and scored. And then the the I think it was the second goal. This is the one that maybe you could pin on Henry a little bit. He his initial headed clearance kind of went into no man's land, and then they they scored on the second chance opportunity. But yeah, after we. After we talked about that, you know, that three at the back and how, how it looked effective and Daniil was kind of thriving in week one, it, it seemed like the script flipped a little bit in week two. Well, last week we sung our praises, you know, of, of, uh, of Daniel Henry and what he did well. But at the same time, I think this week we kind of saw some of those deficiencies we alluded to. And I don't think, I'm, I'm not going to say it's Daniel Henry's fault. I think, you know, to be fair to the system is, good as it is for him it also you know there's 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 deficiencies there and from what I saw is he was playing in that middle of a back three allowing him to kind of sweep up and just go after people but for whatever reason his timing was just off this game versus the other one he missed a bunch of tackles I mean he made a bunch too but it was just it was it was kind of just like a, a spray it was like you know he, he was getting all these shots but he was missing them so it's like you know are you doing good because you, you got a lot of hits or are you doing bad because of the hit percentage, you know? And that's, that's the thing with, with Daniel Henry. I think that's something that we're going to see improve his, his judgment. Obviously I'd prefer if he wasn't leaving his feet so much because he is a great slide tackler. That's something his, that is quite, you know, he, he's a great slide tackler. When he goes in, he usually gets the ball, but usually when he's doing that, he's doing it from behind. It's easier to kind of wrap your legs around and get the ball from behind. Cause when you lunge and slide from, you know his new position it's almost like a number six almost this kind of role he's playing it's not easy to slide at guys because just one shoulder drop one body faint 
you know, and the guy's gone. Whereas, you know, when you're coming from a side, you know, or behind, there's not much the guy can do if you time it right. Obviously, if you miss time, you look terrible. You get a red, you break the guy's leg. But when you're coming from in front, it's there's so much more that can go wrong. And I prefer if he would find a way to stop leaving his feet so much because he is a good, also a good standing tackler. But I'm not going to say and see all the old Daniel Henry's back or this and that. I think, you know, it was a blip on the radar. He's rusty. He's getting used to it. But I think this number six slash center back hybrid role he's playing has potential. But I just think he's going to need to figure out, you know, the best way to make, you know, full use of his attributes. Because I just think diving in from where he is is just not going to work. And with these South Korean midfielders, they're so shifty. You just can't do that. They're, they're so aware. And, I think it'll make it'll be Daniel Henry will be better off for it. I think there's an only will help him and hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully it makes a difference and it'll make him more versatile. So for the national team, if John Herdman wants to go play the three at the back and play with Alfonso Davies and Zachary Bouguiar as fullbacks, he can. I mean, at least give Canada more versatility options in the national team fold. Yeah, it seems like the the position Daniel's playing right now is a bit of trial by fire. It's you know he's just going to have to figure it out one way or another and 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 there's going to be some challenges along the way um and and yeah as you said i think one of the things that korean footballers do so well is they can be standing still with the ball at their feet and be incredibly elusive from that position little feints on the ball little turns you know there's there's so good in in incredibly tight spaces and when you're a guy like daniel that loves to just slide in sometimes those two things don't go together super well and I think we saw that you know maybe exposed a few times but uh you know Daniil's as we spoke about last week he's already evolved his game tremendously and uh, this is just kind of part of that continued progression so with that I think we're gonna take a little bit of a break here but we're gonna be right back with some CPL talk some MLS talk a little little bit of an update about the academy system and our thoughts on that. And and then I think we're going to wrap it up with a little bit of MLS kit discussion, which is always controversial. So looking forward to that. And then uh, maybe some, some questions from Twitter as well. So uh, yeah, we'll be back in just a moment here on the third sub. And all right, we're back after a quick, quick virtual break, quick or I guess for you guys was a quick virtual break for us. Ah, wasn't that long either just to catch the breath uh catch you know catch catch your spirit i don't know what where i'm going with that but we're 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 getting the steam back in the train and we're back with lots of north american soccer soccer talk i mean it's it's a bit strange usually we lead off the north american talk and go into the international but with how football has been recently the international is just kind of taking the cake and who knows maybe if this mls return to play solution or even CPL return to play solution happens, we'll return to that. But for now, well, while all the soccer is going on in Korea and Europe and in in uh, Germany, they get the the eyeballs, they get the attention. But on this, that doesn't mean that on this side of the the Atlantic Ocean, things aren't going on. And the recent news, we'll we'll start off with the CPL news. And last week we spoke of the MLS suggesting a hub solution. Now the CPL is finally opening up to that idea and they're suggesting bc as a hub solution something we did you know suggest as a possibility and kind of how you know are you you think that's it's about time it's only a matter of time until this happens or how are your thoughts on them are david klanikin and the cpl finally opening themselves up to that idea 
Well, it's interesting to see that, you know, we've seen MLS, we've seen the NHL, we've seen now the CPL. It seems like the prevailing advice from health authorities is to look seriously at this, you know, centralized one location solution. And I guess it makes sense because it gives you the, the highest degree of control over the environment and, you know, kind of an easy way to monitor the players as a group rather than having to go and look at all the individual clubs. And, and also when you're dealing with, you know, somewhere like Canada or somewhere like North America where the, the travel is so much greater, uh, it, it probably makes sense as well. You know, in the Bundesliga, you can, you know, there's definitely some, some decent travel days, but you can, you know, you can get all away with a lot more, you know, by bus or just kind of like relatively localized travel. The same applies in England and, and a lot of other places, but, uh, you know, you're not going between Toronto and Vancouver that easily, uh, in the, in, in the CPL or, you know, we're talking about Victoria and Halifax, right? So, you know, that's, a, that's a pretty serious travel day for anyone who's made that trip. And, uh, and so I think in that, you know, in that sense, it, 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 from a practicality perspective, both, you know, to do with coronavirus, but just overall when we're trying to deal with the, you know, something where you're monitoring all the players closely, it makes a lot of sense. But at the same time, it's, you know, not without its sacrifices because it's probably not a solution that the players are all that excited about. Certainly, you know, the coaching staff and like auxiliary staff, it's, uh, you know, asking someone to, okay, for the next two, three months, you're going to go live in a hotel or live in, you know, kind of dorm style accommodations or however they get put up and, and just, you know, play matches and get tested regularly. It doesn't, it doesn't sound like a terribly attractive lifestyle but at the same time it's kind of the the balance of how much do you want to play versus what are you willing to put up with and I think you know so selfishly for us having it on the west coast kind of seems ideal but I I know some people out east aren't maybe thrilled with that and I know the idea of you know having an east and west hub has been thrown around Um, so but ultimately I think it's a it's a question really of how much are you willing to sacrifice in order to have your sport back? And that's, you know, ultimately while we can comment on it as media, it's really down to the players and the organizations, what level of sacrifices they're willing to make. And, and I think, you know, the one thing we can say about whether it's MLS, CPL, NHL, and any of these leagues that are thinking about returning it does probably make things a lot easier from a broadcast perspective because, you know, you're setting up gear and you're, you're, you have a team at one location and that will kind of work for a multitude of teams and a multitude of games. And so I think from limiting the media and auxiliary staff that are kind of separate from the clubs, it makes a lot of sense. Just again, the question is how much are players and teams willing to buy it? Well, it makes a lot of sense, really. Like, especially for the eight, since it's only eight teams. One problem with the MLS solution is that there's so many teams. You know, it it makes it a lot tougher to find all the space for all the teams. Whereas, eight teams, they can almost all isolate in one hotel, and and then in that case, it won't even have to be like in Germany, where you know there's all these you know precautions within the players. Like, if all the players are self-isolated together, you know they they all you know you know they're all tested positive they all have to stay in this hub in that case it, it could re- 
have you know the return could be a little more normal because what's unique about Germany is that they're acting as if the leagues returned as normal. So teams still have to travel, they have to go to away venues, they're switching venues, you know, so the social distancing has to be very much in effect because when there's movement and transit, you know, the virus could pick up accidentally, et cetera, et cetera. But if there's this sort of hub solution, they actually stay in a hub and it's a small hive because there's only eight teams. Well, you know, there could, you know, if they make sure they, they arrive 14 days before quarantine, then start training and then start playing, then it could be a little more normal than what we saw in Germany, you know, as an example, obviously I'm not a virologist and for all we know, it, those protocols might be in play, but that's just, you know, some ideas in my head, you know, from what just, you know, just thinking, but either way and whatever they do end up doing, I think due to the smaller size of the CPL, they only need to play four games and, you know, a match day or even do two days, two games, one match day, two games, the other to ensure proper sanitation in between games, et cetera, et cetera. I think that really plays in their favor. And I think, you know, one, one reason that this could be feasible is that, you know, they could really, as one thing we've said since the beginning, one thing they've been resistant to, but they're starting to realize this is a great time to take advantage of that TV money and not from a selfish standpoint or to generate interest, but just to keep your clubs afloat and kind of like the Bundesliga and all collateral damage or well, damage, collateral impacts. It's not damage, it's positive all the collateral publicity, et cetera, et cetera, that you gain from this, you, you, you know, you, you, you take it, you're not going to complain and just take it, get your club some, you know, some, some games, some money, just get their players in action. I think they'll, they'll benefit from it. And I think even though people are wondering, okay, one soccer, like their subscriptions aren't that high, at least from what people, what's leaked and et cetera, et cetera. But surely a lot of soccer fans will shell out a five or a 10 or a get a year you know, a year plan, or even if it gets on TV, like their numbers have a chance to really take a positive impact here. And maybe those numbers will, will, will stay after, after COVID all this is over because people really fall in love with the league. So I think if you're the CPL, you're an only an eight team league. If you can find a hub solution that works to, you know, not only well to help your clubs stay afloat, but also generate interest, I say go for it. And I think BC based on how things are going could work and, you know, maybe go to Victoria, a smaller city, or, you know, Vancouver, find a way to create a little hub self-isolate. This could be, this could really work. And I'm really hoping that the the more simplistic logistics and the, you know, the, the smaller amount of teams allows the CPL to jump on this, albeit with, you know, as, as much precaution as necessary, sooner than MLS. Because I feel like it's it's far more important for the CPL to start up again before MLS than it is for things to happen vice versa. And I think having some of those matches, as we've mentioned tons of times, you know, in those CPL matches in the spotlight for North American soccer fans is a really unique opportunity. And, and hopefully, you know, hopefully the reason we're only starting to hear about this now from people with the CPL is because they've been working really hard on a solution and hopefully, you know, we're a, a decent ways along in this development. And I just, yeah, ultimately you'd like to see playback and, and you'd like to see the league not waste too much time groveling back over for back and forth over, you know, who hosts it and, you know, whose TV rights and how it all works, but let's just, you know, find a solution that works and kind of get on with it. Especially if, as you said, you know, you can house maybe all the teams in one hotel and, and keep the, at least the medical part of it relatively, 
you know, realistic and easy to keep a hold of. It, it seems like there's a lot of potential there. So, uh, yeah, with that, um, I don't know, Alex, if you have any final thoughts on that, but there's also conversation in the Canadian Premier League about adding a team for the future in the province of Quebec. So uh, I don't know if you want to take us there. Yeah, well, I, I just wrote that down because it's one that's really made a lot of waves, but it's going to be interesting to see how all of this affects CPL expansion because before COVID hit, expansion talks were just, you know, they were, they were just, it was just insane how crazy all this talk would be. It's, Sounds like each day there's all oh, there's interest for Fraser Valley. There's interest for, you know, Saskatoon. There's interest for, you know, another team in Ontario. There's interest for another Maritimes team or Quebec team. And, you know, obviously the CPL has been very ambitious with expansion. And, you know, Ottawa was the eighth team to join. It sounded like Saskatoon was going to come next year and Quebec as well to put it to 10 teams and they were hoping to have 16 teams by the 2026 World Cup at least 16 that's just being generous and it's going to be interesting to see because if the finances are impacted as they say I wonder if that's going to deter people from wanting to invest in soccer etc etc how it's affecting but either way for whatever reason AS Blainville a PLSQ so the Quebec equivalent of Ligue 1 Ontario's Premier League Soccer Québécois it's an well semi-pro team kind of like yeah like the league one Ontario they recently you know put out a post with the, their logo and a CPL logo like a their logo on the head of a body dreaming of a CPL and obviously that doesn't mean much but it's really random and there's been a lot of movement for soccer in Quebec recently there's Metro soccer I don't know why that accent I just naturally I guess that's what happens when you speak French but you know, this Metro soccer, they, these guys founded by, you know, helped by Mike Miller of the, the premier podcast. Um, shout out to him. I, he, you know, he does lots of great stuff, but he, he, him and his, his guys in, 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 well, he's from Montreal, him and the guys from Montreal, a lot of the media personalities there and lots of fans, they collaborated together to start a movement to bring, you know, soccer to Quebec as much as some, the movement in Saskatoon was made last summer where they played, the developments, Whitecaps development squad played a team of Saskatoon elite players to, you know, showcase the viability. Well, Montreal is trying to do something similar. They made a huge movement. And sounds like there's been a lot of talk from a lot of the Quebec personalities that follow that. It just seems a matter of when, not if, for Quebec, a Quebec team, be it Quebec City, Laval, Montreal, they're all options, Blainville, which is, you know, on the outskirts of those, one of those cities. I'm not, not too, too sure for my Quebec geography pardon me i guess i'll i'll search it so i am before before we 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 go i'll definitely make sure to to check but yeah it sounds like a team in quebec it's only a matter of time and i think it's going to be good and from what it sounds like even before olympic lyon was interested in potentially having a team in quebec much like atletico madrid in ottawa and i just think all of this news is huge for the cpl and it's obviously a lot of it was coming up before this whole covid pandemic but I'm curious to see how this pandemic affects that. But if not, there could be some really bright days ahead for, you know, getting these teams market so that kids in Quebec and Saskatchewan, et cetera, et cetera, can dream about having a, their own professional team to grow up and play for. Yeah. And, and if there's something I've learned over the years, it's that, you know, no one seems to, seems to ride harder for their pro sports teams or, you know, getting, 
pro sports teams back than the the state of Quebec. And so I think the, you know, the hunger, the hunger is definitely there. And, you know, whether it's, whether it's Laval just outside Montreal or whether it's setting up in Quebec and kind of, you know, you're having the MLS team in Montreal and then having a CPL team in Quebec, there's, you know, lots of options to sort of expand the presence of pro soccer in Quebec and, and kind of, you know, work towards building those, those pipelines across the, all the provinces. And so it's, it's exciting. And yeah, I don't know if it, I don't know if the current financial state of the CPL will scare teams away, or maybe it makes the prospect of joining, you know, a little more realistic, like maybe the asking price for CPL is it quite as high given this the league could probably use an influx of cash. Like I'm, I'm interested to see how that works out and whether it decentivizes or incentivizes teams thinking about joining, you know, whether or not that's realistic and how that might affect the timeline, like depending on how this season goes are, you know, are adding teams next year, two years, three years down the road. How are those timelines affected? I think it, you know, obviously remains to be seen at this point, but uh, yeah, it's promising, promising times, I think for the CPL and, and, and like a lot of pro sports, it feels like things are now sort of on the upward t- trend and that's uh that's exciting. Yeah. Well, it's, it's also going to be interesting to see foreign investment. We speak of, you know, Atletico Madrid, think of other teams because this pandemic's affected teams all over the world and big teams as well have taken financial hits. So who knows, maybe it'll, See it, we'll see a drop in, you know, per, per, uh, foreign investment, sorry, from these big teams. But I do think we'll still see a return and hopefully an expansion because obviously a lot of crisis, a crisis like this could kill a new league. But hopefully if they manage this well, they've so far been mostly, you know, about precaution, precautionary. Obviously they, the salary cut was a bit, you know, abrupt. And, you know, we weren't a fan of how it was maybe brought about and, you know, how the players had, you know, they weren't unionized yet, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, to give a credit for the move itself, like it's not a move they were doing just to, you know, be Grinches or to be Scrooge McDuck. Sorry. That's the guy I'm thinking of. They were doing it to kind of, you know, protect the league, protect the players. Well, not players try to protect the league for the players. Sorry. But, you know, as long as there's, this sorts of two-way dialogue so that the moves made by the league to protect the players actually do protect the players. I think is they, if they can manage this crisis, they'll be all right. And I think expansion will continue as normal. And I think it's excited to imagine. I think it, it's going to be great to have this connected, you know, CPL with all sorts of teams, you know, in unique markets that we can all go to and enjoy the sport. And it's going to, you know, make kids like, you know, like a Thomas Hassel who is from Saskatchewan, who had to go to the Whitecaps to get a shot. Well, imagine if he started playing for a pro team at 16 and made this huge rise, I think, or even someone like Alfonso Davies, obviously FC Edmonton existed when he came up, but imagine him coming up through his local club. Like I just, it's going to create a lot of great Canadian soccer stories. And then I just hope it's only a matter of time until games are back. And then after that, until, you know, the expansion and whatnot of the league just continues to grow because there's a lot of potential there. It just needs to be, nurtured properly let's say and so if we're talking about building those pipelines and you know the young players earning experience we uh we talked i want to say it was almost a month back now or maybe more than a month about 
MLS's release about, you know, the new academy setup, which really didn't contain much information at all at the time. And it was kind of, you know, the, the sort of some of the U S development system was devolving and the, and the situation was very fluid. But since then there've been some updates on that front and the MLS has sort of brought out their new, what they're calling their MLS elite youth development platform, highlighting not only the MLS clubs and their academies, but other elite academies that are going to be part of this network. And uh, so this does seem like more of a, a concrete plan in terms of MLS's development sphere. But the one thing that we sort of noted pre-show was when you look at the Pacific Northwest, you've got Vancouver, you've got Seattle, you've got Portland, but no other academy clubs or teams within any of those three regions. And, and when you look at the Midwest, it's the same. Really, all the additional elite academy clubs that were added were in the Northeast, in the Southeast, or in California, essentially. You got a few in, uh, in New Mexico, too, as well, I believe. Or is that – it's either Arizona or New Mexico. But, yeah, ultimately, this seems like a good step. And it does seem like MLS is trying to sort of revitalize their youth development system. But I think still for those three Pacific Northwest clubs, this isn't necessarily, you know, an immediate solution to the problem they've been having. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, my beef or beef, but you know, my issue with the academies will always, you know, be the pay to play structure, you know, how it doesn't necessarily benefit, you know, minorities or, or, you know, people, you know, who aren't necessarily financially wealthy and, you know, I'll always have an, an issue with that and how, you know, all these players drafted out of college, you see them, you know, the white collared rich kids and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I, I mean, you know, it's, it's not, just, it's certainly not a meritocracy. Yeah. It's certainly, especially compared to other places in the world where you can see these rises where your money doesn't mean anything. You can just play and, you know, like in Brazil or even in England and other places you see that. I mean, even England, they, they really had it. Well, it's hard to say for England. It's a unique case study. We, you know, at least think of a Brazil where all these players that come from nothing to something just because the sport gave them something. Whereas in North America, you need the money. And, you know, for, for that, it'll always be an issue of mine. But for the setup itself, like to be, to give credit to the setup, like it's a good setup. Obviously, there's miss, there's a lot missing. It's quite incomplete. Like, for example, just in that middle pocket of like Montana, Idaho, you know, all those places, there's just no teams, which is like kids that play soccer too. Like, you know, you could each have each state have a team that they can all go to or something, you know, like kind of like a travel team or something. I mean, this is kind of what it is. It's like a travel team, you know, the American travel team, like I'm air quoting that, but you know, with sponsored by a league and, you know, like an actual professional setup, but I do like that they are partnering with amateur clubs and other non MLS academies. I think that's huge and that's good for some people and, you know, places where there aren't an MLS team and they have that opportunity to, you know, get noticed and play against MLS competition in cups. Obviously from what we read, it's going to be mostly MLS versus MLS and league play, but in cups and some other intra league play, there's going to be a mix, which is huge for a kid from say, like, I can't think of a state off the top of my head that doesn't have an MLS team, but, say Tennessee before they expanded to MLS or like, you know, like a Kentucky, I don't know if they have a, an academy set up. I'd have to look, but you know, in one of those smaller States, this kid could be playing. He doesn't have an MLS team. He plays 
against, you know, Nashville's MLS team with Kentucky. This is completely fiction. I don't even know if Kentucky has a team, but he plays a, like a blinder. Teams start to notice him. They start watching his, his games. All of a sudden, he has a path to, you know, maybe his path before would have been, okay, just hope I get noticed. I'll go to college, and if I'm lucky, I'll get drafted. Well, you know, maybe he can bypass a couple steps and get noticed. And another thing that MLS is doing is they're encouraging more international play from their academies, which is also – you know, it's, it's important for from a pure developmental standpoint. Obviously, one big question of all this is, you know, is it there's ethics like, well, not ethics. I'm not saying it's unethical, but there's always a question of are these kids too young to having to do all this travel to play teams, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, if you want them, them to go pro, it's just a sacrifice that's going to have to be made. Obviously, in Europe, it's different. You can play an away game in Europe, like a European youth champions league game where you travel to another country and still sleep in your own bed. Whereas in North America, that's not, you know, that's not always the case, but those are going to have to be the sacrifices that are going to be made. And I think it's going to be huge to have kids from academies play international teams. So it can put more players on the radar. So I think for that reason, those couple of things stand out to me, but at the same time, I think it's incomplete in terms of the teams and, you know, maybe there's no real ideal format, obviously, due to the, you know, big spread out of the United States and Canada. But I think it's a it's a start. And I'm curious to see how it grows before I really put full judgment into it. But I'd say before having seen it in action, it's definitely, you know, an idea that kind of sticks out as like a six out of 10 kind of thing, like pretty good, but, you know, still lots of work to be done. Well, what is really nice about this format is that they've opened the door to non MLS academies and non MLS organizations. And so before it was kind of a, you know, you're either with us or against us proposition. And so seeing, even though, you know, I touch on there being certain places where there are no academies at the moment as part of this system, at least now that precedent has been set and the, and the door is open. So hopefully as time goes on, this can be improved upon and, and sort of molded to, you know, better suit the needs of the developmental game in North America. And, you know, all this stuff is kind of on hold right now. And I, and I won't lie and, you know, say that I'm not concerned about the level of funding a lot of these programs are going to receive when MLS does come back. Cause obviously there's, you know, going to be a, a financial pinch in almost every aspect of life for a lot of people. So, uh, yeah, short term, it, it, as you said, you know, it's a it's a six out of ten, or it's a you know, it's a kind of wait and see. But I think long term, at least we're we're seeing some restructuring that has more opportunity for positive development. Yeah, well, it's going to be interesting to see how the Canadian teams are impacted because obviously Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver are all involved in this. You know, it's normal they're MLS teams, but you know, if they're to move to a CPL, as you know seems likelier and likelier especially with all this expansion on both both sides of the border you know how is this going to affect are they going to keep their academy set up so they'll screw it just keep it in the mls setup because the cpl and academies has been an interesting relationship because you know the cpl's kind of been you know less less about oh let's have an academy set up ourselves so you know it's going to be interesting to see how this ends up collaborating between canada and u.s and how it ends up impacting canadian soccer because now, as great as it is for, you know, U.S. soccer, I've not really invested personally in how U.S.'s youth development's going. I could, you know, I'm not going to say I could care less. I'm interested. I like to see the sport grow in North America, but it's not exactly something I'm, you know, rooting for. Not saying that I'm not rooting, I'm rooting against, but it's not something, you know, 
it's kind of like one of those teams in a league where you're just like, okay, I hope they do well, but like, I'm not sitting there watching other games, you know, I'm following them along. That's, I, I'd prefer, you know, Canadian soccer. I, I want to see Canadian soccer grow. So it's going to be curious to see how that happens, but you know, there's always potential, these kinds of ideas. It's just a question of making it fruitful. And obviously, you know, as someone who's followed a lot of European soccer, especially always like European soccer model, that's way to follow. But we do forget that logistics in the U S especially just geography, make it impossible, but if they can find alternate solutions that can make things work. Well, what can we say? I guess before, you know, just as long as the game improves and, Canada and the even the U.S. too. As much as we you know, we rag on them. At least both countries show the standard that one would expect of countries of their size in global soccer. And and so from that, do we kind of want to move on to you know the the MLS at large and the and the growing momentum that there seems to be behind this uh, this Orlando solution? Yeah, no, as, as we mentioned last week, um, Orlando is likely going to be a hub city for MLS, which is just, it's interesting to see how that's going to turn out because obviously, as we mentioned, you know, going to the U.S. right now, if you're a Canadian player or a player living in Canada, it's a, not exactly a proposition that would have me jumping for joy, let's say, but Orlando just does have the logistical setup to handle it, but now it's going to be seeing first how teams handle their return and how logistics of traveling Orlando, isolating, making sure teams train, et cetera, et cetera, will work. But from a pure logistics standpoint, COVID aside, like Florida, Orlando seems like a great solution. They have this park of sports at Disney world where they have like 10 stadiums and they can play games simultaneously to set all this stuff. But you know, it's kind of one where I have mixed feelings about, and I probably, they won't go away until I see it happen with my own eyes. But if that really helps them get back in the training by June and playing by July as they ambitiously state, well, can't say I'd exactly be fully against it, but at the same time, it's not something I'm really, you know, jumping for joy with. Well, and, and, and something that's going to have to be monitored as well is that, you know, the, the agreement between Canada and the United States to keep the border closed has been pushed back another month. And so we're going to get to a point where, there's going to have to be some sort of exception or some sort of, you know, rule in place to, to permit these Canadian teams to go down to Orlando. And it's going to be interesting to see how those two interact. And yeah, despite the fact that it's, it probably wouldn't be, you know, my first choice for the return of MLS. It it just seems like something where, you know, no one is, you see this a lot in sports when there are sort of rumors and speculation that, you know, people putting out stories about the Orlando solution and, and no one's really saying no, or no one's coming out and denying that that's being, you know, seriously considered, or that seems like the plan going forward. And so the momentum just kind of grows and grows behind it. And it seems like the direction MLS is headed. And yeah, only, only time will tell really if the, the timeline they've set out is, is going to make sense. But, uh, you know, obviously a return to play would be, would be positive, but yeah, if I was a, a Canadian player or even a, a, you know, a U.S. player on a Canadian team, I, I definitely be questioning why am I going to leave, you know, a relatively good situation COVID wise to go down to Florida. But at the same time, if you're in such a controlled environment, then I guess it, you know, it doesn't necessarily matter, but there's obviously always risk even 
no matter how controlled and, and isolated the environment is. Mm-hmm. And what's unique with MLS is that like something we've touched on the financial impact of this league. I mean, they're a lot more comfortable than the CPL, but it's not to say they're out of the woods yet. There are still teams that struggle and it makes it tough because it makes you have to really put a question like this. It's not like, you know, we're in the NHL where a lot of people feel the, their prompted return is more, you know, just, you know, it's motivations other than, you know, keeping your teams afloat because teams there are so rich and it's kind of people are not as on board. Whereas MLS, it's kind of like, you know, you're not feeling it, but you know that teams really need it. And that's the unique standpoint. It's kind of like the Bundesliga in Germany, in effect. It's kind of like, okay, risks might have to be taken because, you know, you want to save these teams. And for that, that's why maybe I'm not fully against it because it's not necessarily like the NHL where it's kind of like, what's you know what's the point of risking things whereas mls okay you understand the state of the league you understand that it's maybe not as you know it's not in the greatest spot at least where it well you know at least what you'd expect so it's just that's what makes it tough and that's what why this kind of whole discussion is is so tough for many people to you know properly wrap their head around yeah and i i I don't know if there's really too much more to touch on that issue right now but we'll really continue to monitor that and obviously if you know if there's any concrete developments coming down the line and and legitimate you know plans set out that's something we're going to discuss but uh something the mls has been sort of sparking on on twitter and on social has been a a best kits ever discussion and uh and they also sent out a sort of uh I, I think there was a bit of shade in the in the tweet that they sent about the uh, Arbutus Brown kit yeah. and, what, and what the kit represented. Was... I think the I think Swamp was an option, <laughs> which made me laugh. But uh, I don't know. I actually I actually didn't mind the Arbutus Brown kit. I know a lot of people have been been roasting that one pretty good for a long time. But I think some of my my opinions about Whitecaps kits maybe differ a bit from the norm. But that was yeah, that was a a no chill post by, by the MLS for sure. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, what can we say? The white caps, they've had the Arbutus Brown. They've had the hoop. It's up, it's down, you know, there's progress. And I think it's unique. They're doing this kit discussion. It's great. I mean, I already think it's BS because I'm pretty sure the Seattle Sounders won over the hoop kit. And it was like (laughs) the freaking. Seattle Sounders black kit like it's not even their nicest Sounders kit but because the Sounders have a huge fan base and they just stuffed the ballots on Twitter the Whitecaps hoop jersey like a lot I saw a lot of fans around the league were you know they're pretty pissed off that one of the best jerseys is already out of the running but you know such is the life of polls I think it's you know obviously the results we take with a grain of salt but it's fun just to celebrate some of the kits around the league because as much as flack as we give MLS, especially now with all the templates, even now and especially before, especially before, there's been some unique kits. And I think for that, there, you should celebrate that and, you know, appreciate some of the legendary threads that teams have had the opportunity to, you know, to sport over these, over these years of MLS. And maybe, maybe I'm a little bit biased from the, from a North American perspective or from, you know, someone who watches essentially North American soccer and the and the major leagues in in Europe, but having there's something about having the one sponsorship on the kit that I think is provides a really nice clean look. And sometimes when you're like you're looking at the K League and it just it feels like there's a lot going on. And to me, sometimes that 
that means that the kit loses a bit of its sense of identity because there's just so many different things going on. And it's, you know, for better or worse now, the Vancouver Whitecaps and Bell are, you know, a very iconic look. And, uh, and, and I think there's something kind of cool about that. And yeah, I, it was really disappointing to see. Yeah. I don't even, I think that's, that might be one of the worst sounders kits, oddly enough, yeah, no, that black like, kit. That was, like, that was pretty like, ridiculous. I like black kits and I get the appeal for it, but it's just not a good one. Like the sounders have such a nice green and like, I think one of my favorite matchups last year is when the white caps, they went away to Seattle and there's a green on white matchup. It was just perfect. Like, and both legs of that, it's not like Portland and Seattle where they're both green and they always have a mismatch, right? At least the white caps with their white and Portland with their green and Seattle with their green, we get some really aesthetic color matchups and it's just not the black is, it was overwhelming. So, so if we're going to continue on the kit discussion here, here's something I want, I want, I'd like to hear your take on because I am that white caps unity kit. The, the gray that they had. Ooh. I know a lot of people, some people love that. Some people hated that. And for me, that is one of the worst kits in white caps history. Oh, I am. I'm not a fan. I think not using any of the blues and the white caps color scheme and just the lack of general creativity, which I know comes down a bit to Adidas at some point, but, but to me, it just looked like, a training top like it just looked it just looked uninspired and and it didn't I, I was never excited to see that kit come out so even even there was a bit of a groan for me where the I think it was the first preseason match this year they were still they using they were, used they were still using the gray and it was like oh thank goodness I don't have to see this other ever again but That's I know some people some people really like it so I don't know it's toughy because I really liked it when it came out because when, when it came out it was really detailed and up close. I still think it's a great kit. So it's definitely one to wear because the details are actually really nice up close. It's just the first game I watched. It was against Montreal at home. I was like, oh, okay, this isn't actually so good. It's not a good TV kit. It's not yeah, like, for, from a distance, even as even as a supporter or definitely on TV, it doesn't. It's not. Yeah, good. I agree with you that up up close, there's more there, but it's just um, ultimately, you know. 80% of your, your viewing of the kit ends up being from afar. from afar. And that's the one thing you could say about the, the hoop kit is, you know, the, the numbers on the back, that's like yeah, one yeah. just little logistical detail. It has nothing to do really with the, you know, the, the aesthetics and the appearance, but it's just from, from us in the press box, or if you're, you know, high up in the stands, seeing the numbers on the back of a kit can be, can be a bit challenging. And it's funny how well, it's sometimes like you don't think of those things, right? Yeah, well, it's like I love the red, and the red makes the kit work. It's just, yeah, no, it's hard to to see. And I think it's it, it was going to make a difference this year. The new MLS font they had is really cool, and I think it's made it easier to, you know, see that kind of stuff. But, you know, that, yeah, it's those little details. And, you know, actually, I'm curious to hear this one, because Unity, I feel like people had a general consensus that, okay, it was good from up front and bad from afar. But the one I really saw people split over was the the rain jersey what were your thoughts on the rain jersey yeah so uh we're, we're putting together a little uh a little kind of best and worst in white caps history round table at 86 forever and so one of the discussions we had was about kits and 
I think it was three or four of our guys said that they, they despise the rain kit. And I think that maybe the hate from, for the rain kit comes more from, there've been, in my opinion, a lot of pretty good white home kits that the white caps have had. And a lot of that comes from, you know, general simplicity, whether it bit, whether it's, you know, just some stripes or they had to sort of see the sky fade that was pretty subtle or you know you just have some little color detailing or you go retro like the hoop and so I think the rain kit was just kind of a who asked for this you know no one was saying oh we really want a kit that has a bunch of triangles on the jersey it just seemed kind of out of left field or something that was sort of you know someone high up in Adidas said hey we want to try this on a kit the Whitecaps are a good team to pin it on. And so I think maybe there's, there's some animosity from just the, the randomness of the concept and the fact that most of the white jerseys looked pretty clean up until that point. But I don't know. I didn't, I didn't hate it as much as a bunch of people did. I wasn't necessarily a huge fan, but, but I'm not calling it out in the way, in the way some maybe do. But yeah, for me, the, the Unity kit is the one that I fixate on for some reason. But the, the Rain kit kind of has a has escaped my fury for whatever reason. Well, it's funny. I actually liked the Rain jersey. It's funny as it is. My beef was more with the concept, but the execution, especially up close and even from afar, because just white kits look nice on TV, but from up close, the details are actually really nice. Like the logo was like, there was like this sort of silver glow to the logo and the way the triangles lined. Like it was actually for some reason a nice kit with, and I think that font that year was nice. Like it just wore, it, it went together really well, which is funny because some kits, you know, like think of the Sea to Sky is my favorite kit personally. But, you know, from a full kit standpoint, one of my issues is that the fade, it was so nice on the kit itself, but on the shorts and the socks, the fade just stops and it just looks like it's incomplete. Whereas I just feel like the, you know, the, the rain kit, for some reason, obviously it was just all white. There wasn't exactly, it wasn't exactly rocket science, but it just blended together so nice for some reason. I just ended up really liking it. So I guess I'm unique, you know, in that standpoint that I was one of the only ones who actually liked the rain, you know, the rain kit. But my beef was more the execute, like the ideas. Like, first of all, like little triangles for rain. They couldn't thought of anything else for rain. And come on, like they said rain and like they close the roof every time it rains. Like if you're going to embrace the rain, at least open up the roof and make teams play on a swampy turf. Like, you know, like at least embrace the rain. It wasn't like exactly like they were embracing it. They'd close the roof every time the sky would get gray, let alone rain. So it's like, that was my beef. It's like, y'all are calling yourself the rain club when you, you don't even play in rain. Like, that was more my. <laughs> yeah. My I, I, I think people had probably greater conceptual disagreements with Nikit than they did with the actual execution there. Like, I think that was the biggest just the way they kind of marketed and sold that I think frustrated people maybe more than its visual appearance. Cause as you said, you know, from farther away from that TV or, you know, broadcast perspective, it kind of blended in and it didn't really stand out. And then when you're up close, the details were actually quite nice, but yeah, I think people just sort of, you know, had some animosity to the concept there. And yeah, I would, regardless of what kit they're wearing, I would love to see the white caps, keep the roof open a little more often because you know when you're when you're playing a houston or you know uh, or an orlando or or someone like that or even a california team like why not give yourself every advantage possible i I don't 
you're, you're, you have that within your control. So I don't know why you wouldn't use it. Yeah. Well, it's like, like, that's one thing I'm always a fan of. I'm a fan of teams that use their geographical advantages to themselves. Like I think of Stoke and their absolute tin can of a stadium where their fans are <laughs> on top of the pitch and, you know, it's, you know, it's pissing rain everywhere. It's just, you know, it's just, you know, it's Stoke, you know, it's Stoke where it's Vancouver. You don't have that feeling because with Vancouver, it's just such a controlled environment. Obviously they were really good, especially in the robo days. They had a great home record all the time because for whatever reason that surface suited their playing style, but just imagine the Mark DeSantos high press and it's just, you know, it's raining everywhere and teams are trying to pass and they're slipping and then just guys are all over them, swarming them. And I just feel like teams, should use pitches to their advantage more especially the teams with the soccer specific stadium like there's no excuse like if i'm miami and i know it's going to be hot all the time like i'm making that thing have the least amount of shade on the field so that players are just absolutely you know like getting scorched or if you're you know if you're you're in a place like even though like in toronto like i love toronto they nailed it for example there even if it's october or whatever it was beside the water it blew my, me away when I went for the first time to there, even in September to watch Cuba or October USA. We stand at the pitch level to watch them train. It was freezing. It was mid-October because it was by the lake and they have they somehow designed it so that the wind just shoots on and it makes it a nightmare to play on. Like, that's so smart. And even when it's not snowing, like, it feels like you're in Art- you know, Antarctica up there, especially if you're a, a Latin team or, you know, a, you know, a Texan team. Like, that, that makes a difference. And I just think with BC – place it's, i love the stadium design i just think a you know well, it'd be nice for that grass and if it was designed for soccer because you know i want i want a soccer specific stadium but you know it's a nice stadium it's just it feels too video gamey almost you know it feels like surreal like I, there just isn't that unique aspect but you know there isn't that those fields where the pitch is shaped weird or the stands are shaped weird or you know, there's an advantage or there's this weather, like it rains all the time. You imagine if it was just a sluggy, you know, just, you know, that's just kind of my issue with the thing. I'd, I'd like that advantage played off more. And that was kind of the thing that was so funny with the rain kit. They're like, we embraced the rain. And then they opened the roof for that one game against Tigres that season. And it rained. And to be fair, they put up a good fight against the Mexican champions at the time. But besides that, it's like, as soon as it snowed or rain, they're like, nope, close or even the clouds. And it's just kind of like, or even when, it was cold let alone the clouds it'd be like it'd be sunny it'd be like five degrees like yeah we're closing it like okay like (laughs) like why and and we've seen a real movement in pro sports in north america over the last 10 years or so towards that sort of you know new retro stadium and i think baseball is the most obvious example where there's been a real movement there but you'd hope that you know if and when at some point down the line the Whitecaps do get a soccer specific stadium that they would embrace that kind of, you know, new retro feel and have some, some unique elements and, you know, maybe it's on the water and yeah, it, it rains a lot and you really, you know, embrace that men- mentality more because yeah, I think, I think a lot of fans right now are craving something with a little more character and something a little more unique. Cause as you said, you know, BC Place does everything so well that it's almost like, you know, we want to see some scars. We want to see some some imperfections and just kind of having this very kind of controlled, sanitized environment while, you know, from a ops perspective makes things very easy. It, it kind of takes some of the excitement out of it sometimes. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. But I guess kind of to, you know, keep on our 
kit topic did you happen to see the new canada soccer kit that leaked i don't know if you did but for those who didn't on twitter and online canada's soccer's new nike kit finally leaked i guess they were probably supposed to wear it during the march games which didn't happen but whenever they do return the kit is released and you know what i think nike because we speak of adidas and templates nike has an even bigger template issue because Nike's templates so literally have teams with the same color scheme. Like the one that really, really made me laugh is I think last year, I think Tottenham Spurs third kit was the same as Barcelona's training kit. Like, like colors, like even colors and design, like design. Okay. You know, each brand has its unique, whatever, but the same colors, like that was so obscene. Like why two big teams, but Nike, Nike this year, they announced the removal of templates. So teams can, design templates and now Canada's got a pretty nice kit for the most part obviously it, I think it's missing some accent it's missing some white but for those who haven't seen it I'll describe it to you I know obviously you can look and pause this and look but you know there's make beliefs embedded in like a modern style into the fabric it looks really nice and I think it's good that you know Canada's with Nike I was a bit disappointed at first you know obviously Umbro made great kits but if Nike's actually going to remove these templates and allow teams to do stuff like this. I think it would be good for Canada soccer, you know, brand recognition. So I thought that was pretty cool from, from my perspective. Yeah. I like that Nike's gone kind of with the, they're still keeping the base primary colors and just, you know, it, it, it's one of those kits that has a good simplistic look. And yet they're, you know, when you, when you take a closer look, they're in nice details. So the best way I can think of describing it is kind of like a, it's like a geometric leaf pattern that kind of underlines the red. And for, you know, for those that have seen it, you'll know what I'm talking about, but I think it's the right mix of simplicity and detail. And yeah, maybe, maybe there could be like some, some white collar details or some white sleeve details or just, just something to give it a little extra that, that maybe would have done it for me. But overall it's a, it's a massive improvement over the, you know, coffee paste kits we've seen for the, the last five or so years. And uh, yeah, it's good to see Nike kind of moving away from, from that format they were using. Cause yeah, there were some pretty, some pretty ridiculous and, and, and silly looks out there with, with teams looking like each other and, you know, just essentially swapping badges and for, you know, for clubs worth so much and for, for a company in Nike, in Nike that, you know, is so massive. It, it doesn't really make much sense. Why would you be cutting corners and in, in those areas? But yeah, it, overall, it's a it's a good luck for Canada, and hopefully, one that we you know we see them winning quite a few times, and and one that really you know kind of represents the the growing movement and quality in Canadian soccer. Yeah, and hopefully, it pops on TV. Hopefully, it sells a lot of kits because all these Bayern fans want to get Alfonso Davies kits, and you know, hopefully, it does all well. Obviously, one thing I thought that came to mind when we were mentioning made for TV kits. I, must be interesting for kit designers to have to design a nice kit, but also a kit that looks good on TV. And that also is a, a unique challenge that, that people face, but I love kit talk. We can, I could talk about kits all day. And I think it's, it's good that Canada's got a, a nice one and the white cap's got a nice one. So that when I watch them, I'll, I won't be, you know, my eyes, I won't be gouging my eyes out looking at abominations on the, on the field. But, you know, I guess to round off this episode, cause we are towards the end here. I saw two questions to at that were on Twitter that I, I was curious to see your answer for. I'll, I'll go with the first one, then the other one's an MLS-related one, but the first one is, if you could pick a city to forever live in 
and you have to consider the soccer teams in the city, the culture of the city, the food, the climate, et cetera, et cetera. You know, what would you pick as a, as a, as a place? Cause I saw that and that was an interesting question because a lot of people I saw said Buenos Aires, which is a really good shout. Uh, I saw someone, you know, mention Paris, Amsterdam, even some of them went in London, and which in terms of pure just number of soccer teams, that's also a great show. But what, what kind of – where would you think of, you know, of setting up? So it's, I, I, I went to Buenos Aires when I was, when I was really little, and that's a, I think that's an underrated shout because Argentina is a, a beautiful country and Buenos Aires is a, is a beautiful city and obviously great footballing tradition there as well. So, you know, good, a good shout for whoever suggested that. But I think – mine without you know obviously you could i i could sit and think about this all day and probably come up with a a bunch of different solutions but i think i'm gonna go with munich because the weather's pretty good the proximity to a lot of places in europe is is great in that location you've got well you can't leave in this this well theoretical scenario you, you can't really leave the city. I'm not no, you sure have, how. You're, you're like isolated to the city. Yeah, that's what okay. they mean. Like okay. You can't. okay, but regardless, I mean, I think Munich's a pretty good spot. It's beautiful architecture, beautiful nature, great food, great beer, you know, terrific, not only culture, but also soccer culture. Um, you know, you've got a, a competitive team. You've got, you know, uh, I think a, a really positive sort of attitude towards football and, and development and everything. And so I have not been to Germany. I, w- I would really like to go, but I think that's, if, if you're just looking for an all around good city, good climate, you know, good culture, good football team, good football and culture, it kind of ticks all those boxes. So that's just the first one that comes to mind for me. Mm-hmm. I think for me it would have to be Europe as much as I'd like South America. I haven't been much. I only been to, you know, one country really in South America. I'd want to visit more. I just think Europe would probably be where I'd want to go. Obviously I'd love to stay in North America too, but I think Europe would be the, you know, the vibe for me and France would obviously be a shout. I've been there a lot, but after thinking the one I came up with off the top of my head is Milan. I think Milan would be really nice. North of Italy, nice, lots of culture, food through the roof, a lot of good soccer teams. They already have AC and Inter sharing a stadium I'm pretty sure there's some other teams within Milan, you know. I just think that could be the ideal one for me. And I think Milan would be would be my shout, would be my pick. But they're definitely a shout-out to, I think, oh, what was it? Turin was another shout in Italy. Naples and Barcelona were some other one, uh, another one that, that came to mind. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot of locations in, in Western Europe that wouldn't, wouldn't disappoint you too much <laughs> if you ended up there for sure. And uh, – and yeah, it's a, it's always a it's always an interesting uh, thought experiment to go through, and you know, hopefully, hopefully it's not a decision that people have to make. Hopefully, hopefully that not. hopefully travel you know becomes a becomes a realistic possibility at some point down the line, and you can you know explore all these places rather than just choose one. But yeah, I, even within that, there are you know plenty of great opportunities, and I think you know Milan and and uh, Munich, if, if those were, you know, two places I, I had to end up for a long time, I wouldn't that be would too be disappointed. Worse. Well, the other question now that we mentioned is within, if any player in the world could join a new, a normal MLS tomorrow, like imagine everything is normal, who would that player be? And that one's a toughie because it's like, do you go for Ronaldo or Messi or, 
Now do you go for this young, hot prospect? Do you bring Davies back? Do you bring Pulisic home? Like, what do you pick? And that one's, I think that was a toughie. I saw, I think, MLS Soccer put that one out. I'm curious to see what your answer for that one is. Okay, so I, I think my answer is not like, this, this is throwing all practicality out the window. This is not from a, a longevity perspective, or this is not to bring in the, the top quality player in the world perspective. This is more from just a, I'd like to, I'd like to see this. And just like, I think the, the shenanigans or like interesting storylines that would ensue would be, would be really good. So my, my dream player would be to have Jamie Vardy come down. Oh, oh, oh. Cause just, I feel like he'd get into all kinds of trouble. He'd probably bag 50 goals or something absurd because he'd just be, you know, poaching at the striking position and, and burning guys with his pace. And I think he'd like, he'd suit the style well, but also probably dominate. And then like off the pitch, I'm sure there'd just be all kinds of interesting storylines. And, and so that's not one that, you know, you're not looking at a player that's going to be in the league for 10 years, or you're not looking at maybe what's, you know, best for the league as a whole, but it's just one from like a pure entertainment factor. I, I think I'd love to see. And I know it's been rumors have been floated out that, you know, basically every aging like English striker at some point there's there's a rumor that they might be coming to MLS but I don't know if that one's really realistic I don't, I, I, I sincerely doubt it but yeah I just think it would be it would be a lot of entertainment I think that's a good shout I mean it's interesting because at first I'm like well yeah Messi Ronaldo if not I'm like you know Holland or Davies yeah. or Sancho or any of the young guns but I think the one that would fit MLS so well personality flair just the whole package i think it would be neymar neymar came to mls just he look kind of look what he's done at league in league uh, i think he would just he would be an absolute party to have around you just <laughs> you know he, he plays so fun that you can tell he just has joy when he plays the game obviously you'd, you'd hope that you know the sun i'm mean, not the sun his injuries sorry aren't, aren't, aren't issues that you know he can handle it but if he's fit oh i think him and mls that would just be a dream party but there isn't a bad answer. I saw some interesting ones. Even like someone, yeah, I saw Hamas Rodriguez as an option. I'm like, you know what? Based on how his career trajectory has gone, this could be a, a good career reboot or, you know, all sorts of players like that. But no, nah, for me, I think Neymar Jr. Obviously, it's a big fish. That's a huge fish. But if it works, you know, we'll see. Well, and, and, and Neymar's, you know, not a guy that it seems that drastic – career changes or you know surprise moves seems beyond the realm of possibility like I don't want to I don't want to I wouldn't want to say that that's out of the question I mean it's highly unlikely but I think that I think that you're right that you know he would look at oh where's a you know a new continent a new continent new place I could go you know kind of conquer and 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 Neymar is also you know a big fan of a lot of a lot of North American sports so I can I can see there being at least a, a base level of interest there yeah, no, I think it would. There's a, it's a match, you know, that that he would be willing to make happen, and you know that I'm sure MLS teams would be dying to make happen. But I think he definitely kind of personify, you know, he just would fit North America. I think he's that's a move waiting to happen. I think kind of like him and Antoine Griezmann would be another player on my list because I was, you know, he's he just seems like the both players tailor made for America. They love American culture. They you know they play with flair with panache you know i think i think that could be a, a potential max that teams would be jumping over themselves to make happen 
All right. Well, I think that pretty much brings us to the end of this episode of the third sub. Uh, I don't know, Alex, if you have any final comments, but we'll just give a shout out. As always, you can uh, find my written work on 86forever.com or you can always at me on Twitter at Samuel underscore rowboat. And I think on 86forever, either later today or tomorrow, we're going to have out that round table that I was talking about, just talking about some of the best and worst of the last 10 years in the Whitecaps MLS history. So uh, stay tuned for that. And yeah, I'll hand it over to you, Alex. Yeah, no, you can find me on my recently refound Twitter at Alex Gonge Ruzik. And he's back. He's back <laughs> at BTS Fan City, Twitter as well. Um, obviously, btsfancity.com got some. You know, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying I'm cooking up a lot, but I'm still cooking up some stuff. Got some ideas to, to get pen to paper, and obviously I'll be writing about games that are going on, et cetera, et cetera. So stay tuned for all that sorts of fun stuff. And I think we'll we'll be back. Uh, this mic podcast setup seems to be pretty nice. So you know, it'll be nice to keep keep up with these podcasts. And who knows, maybe we'll have some more coming up, especially with more soccer returns. We'll have more to talk about, more to discussed but yeah no it's good to good to be back and uh it was a pleasure as always yeah be well be safe everyone and enjoy the football that's on some of the matches we talked about and we'll uh speak to everyone again soon have a good one